The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week my guests are Patrick Barwise and Peter York, who are the authors of a new book, well, whose title certainly gives you a sense of what its line is. It's The War Against the BBC, How an Unprecedented Combination of Hostile Forces is Destroying Britain's Greatest Cultural Institution and Why You Should Care. Uh, welcome both. Thank you. That's a, you know, that's fighting talk. But start with, because I know that a lot of people, you know, many among them spectator readers, will you know have issues with the BBC. So to start, can I ask you both to say, you know, what's the BBC as you see it for? What's the point of it? It's to hold us together. It's to inform us, and that really matters. Lord Reith set it out to inform, educate, and entertain in that order. And never more than now have we needed it. It's desperately needed now. It's desperately needed in the age of the Great Replacement Plan or QAnon or any of those things. And it's desperately needed now, now that we might face Vax Refuseniks. My answer to the question is, is it's, it's what Lord Reith said, that it's, it's to inform, educate and entertain it so happens it has a lot of other knock-on effects because it sits at the heart of our very, very successful broadcasting industry and, and some of our wider creative industries, notably music. Uh, so I think it has these indirect benefits as well, but we primarily see it as, as delivering on, on the mission that, that Reith set up um, very nearly 100 years ago. The, I think the objection that some people have to it is they'll, they'll say, look, to inform, educate and entertain are three relatively, you know, different sorts of objective. Do we need them to be bundled together and do we need them to be paid for by some form of public subscription? You know, there's a lot of entertainment that we get, you know, the market provides that, you know, we don't, we don't need the BBC to supply us with books. We don't need the BBC to supply us, you know, directly with music. Why... Why does it have the remit it does, and why do we pay for it in the way we do? Well, there's, there's, that's really two questions. We don't need it. We don't need the BBC. We don't need television. So I think those people who's, who argue that tend to argue from a sort of ideological, in-principle uh, thing, which is, to me, kind of at the animal farm level, of saying um, anything the market can do the market should be allowed to do without any competition from the public sector. The way we've approached this is in a much more sort of rational evidence-based way, which is say, what are the practical alternatives? And if you decided that uh, the BBC should continue to uh, inform and, and educate, but shouldn't be allowed to entertain, the question is, would the British public be better off or worse off? And the people who say this have never actually sort of explained why 
the, the public would be better off. And if you actually look at the facts, what you find, if you look at the data, it's impossible to argue the public would be better off. And crucially, the public agrees with that. So, so when John Whittingdale, at the time of charter renewal, to his credit, did, uh, among other things, consult the public and, and uh, commission market research, uh, I mean, most members of the public sort of couldn't understand why they were being asked should the BBC be doing strictly? And this is to them just a stupid question. Of course the BBC should do all of those things. It's also the case that this is a creative product and the distinction between programmes that that, uh, inform and educate and programmes that entertain is a false distinction. It's not a black and white distinction. And in the book we have quite a lot of fun uh, with the very first episode of uh, The Great British Bake Off and, and the dire reviews, and, and, and according to this rather mad ideological free market logic, once it emerged that this innocent public service programme, an, an amateur baker competition, once it emerged that it was a blockbuster, according to this mad logic, uh, the BBC should have stopped showing it because it was crowding out the competition. Peter, do you want to sort of add to that? Yes, it's very fascinating. Thinking about your readers, about the transfer from One Nation Tories or consensus Tories or Butskillites or any of those kinds of people to Peacock, um, Professor Peacock's IEA sorts of Tories in the 80s onto kind of market economy on steroids Tories who were absolutely don't understand about a mixed economy or a mixed media ecology. They don't understand that Silicon Valley arose out of public sector pump priming. They don't understand that the BBC invests more in British content, live, fresh and local, than any other player, even though the Comcast owns Sky, is about five times bigger in terms of revenue. Well, if so they actually pump prime our allegedly 112 billion valued creative sector. Well, I think there's certainly something you say in that. that I mean, one of the reasons I'm interested in really talking to you about this book is that, you know, I worked at the Telegraph in the late 90s and early noughties when Charles Moore, who's, as you, you will know, a fervent opponent of the licence fee, was the editor, and there they did seem to be a split between two types of conservatism that was very articulated by attitudes to the BBC, a sort of paternalistic, old-style Tory, and a sort of very, you know, gung-ho, free-market, Hayekian sort of post-Thatcher Tory. And, you know, the sort of cultural conservative and the ideological conservative, maybe, if that's, well, Free market ideological conservative. Charles Moore is all over the place. But one of the one of the things that you say, which I think is very interesting, there is is this idea that the value added of the BBC. I mean, you seem to suggest in the book is that it's only in a paragraph, but you you do cite sources. You say that the investment you know that's taken from the public purse, wherever it's taken, actually comes back to the economy twofold. Is that is that right? Where, what are the sources for that? And, it was PwC, uh, commissioned by the BBC, but it's never been sort of seriously challenged. Uh, now, having said that, this is, in my view, one of, one of these areas in which 
economists aren't able to make absolutely no this is this is economics not physics and it's uh if you like the dependent variable is gross value added which is a slightly squishy concept and it's to do with the bbc spends money but it spends money on suppliers who themselves spend money it's that kind of a multiplier argument and i think it's directionally correct but i wouldn't bet my life on the numbers but uh you know this is this is the standard way that economists work these things out and crucially it's never as far as i know been challenged so it's the best we've got and i think that at a sort of more qualitative level the way that peter has described it as this is you know the prime investor in original british content that clearly has knock on effects within the wider economy and among the wide beyond that the creative industries if i would pick one it would be music and we quote the fact that there was a rather obnoxious german 100 years ago that, who described you know britain as the land without music which was pretty outrageous at the time but no one would say that now and clearly the bbc has had a central role in that whole process the bbc was very important to reith uh, music was very important to reith and i think we're still benefiting from that passion that he had one of the things reith did though was was to say we won't give you what you want but what you need or something a bit north of what you want culturally is that still an appropriate thing is that still what the bbc's trying to do i mean it seems to ride two horses doesn't it a little bit well i don't think they're sort of uh, uh, horses are sort of um categorical okay you're either on one horse or another and i think because this is a creative industry i think that it's a sense of a false distinction if if we look at the david attenborough programs you know would you put those down under inform educate or entertain well i would hope at least two of those so what is true is that the bbc you know there is a sort of citizenship side to the bbc as well as it's not just a consumer service when it was set up it was a monopoly when it started in television it was a monopoly it's now in a ferociously competitive market so that i rethian idea which was very paternalistic and wouldn't be sort of acceptable now i think is really not applicable to much of what it does now it will try and introduce people so for instance uh the bbc has a better track record of introducing new artists in music uh, and it still commissions new work so it does some of that but that's a tiny proportion this distinction you make you know you you've said you know it's tricky to say well you know the first episode of bake off was public service programming but now it's shifted into entertainment and so we can't make that distinction between public service and entertainment sides of it am i wrong in saying that you can maybe draw a distinction slightly closer to the news end of things i mean i think quite a lot of people who are not ideologically hostile to the bbc would say look there is something that isn't necessarily very market responsive and which is a public good i you know clean information like clean air and clean water is a kind of collective good in a democracy it's something that costs a huge amount of money because you need correspondence all over the world and you need all the things that that feed into a single bbc news bulletin and that that you can argue would be something might be good to be subsidized by public subvention or whatever you know paid for out of general taxation and that anything that's 
entertaining or even educative outside that mm. is, if you like, peripheral. And that there's a sort of core BBC that would be essentially about news. Is that, is, is that an argument that's sustainable? And if, if not, why not? Two reasons. I mean, the first is it's shades of grey, that, that these are not, you know, sheep and goats distinctions. Uh, the second reason is, is just that this argument from principles, this ideological argument, is, is to me, fundamentally wrong. The, 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 the right criterion is the public interest, and therefore you need to, you know, as in all rational policy analysis, you say, OK, so what would a BBC which didn't do anything popular, didn't do anything similar to what the market provides, you know, what would it look like and why would that be better? And no one's actually done that. So you can make an argument in principle which ideologically says anything which is entertaining, the, the market will do and we don't need competition from, from the public sector. Uh, and that tends to be from people who think that the public sector is by definition less efficient, which is clearly not true of the 43 pence per household per day BBC, which gives us all of these and doesn't even get all the 43 pence. Okay, so I think that as soon as you start looking at the real facts, that whole very ideological argument breaks down. But show us we're wrong. Okay, let the people saying that. Peter. It's actually a a set of, I hate to say this, right-wing talking points. Mm -hmm. And the right-wing talking point involved here, which was cooked up by sophistry in the IEA back in the 1980s, was the idea of distinctiveness. And if you want a takedown of distinctiveness that's really brilliant, look at David Mitchell's latest book. He says they want to set the bar at distinctiveness so as to commission things that are so advanced or so difficult that nobody wants to listen to them. I mean, it's very, you know, it's a bit of sophistry, um, but it's very easily taken down. I think you can also say, so where is this coming from? It's coming from more than one place. So there's what Peter's just described, which is the IEA, and that is sort of free market economists, and it's sort of ideological. There's another place, darkly funded, okay? And then the question is, by whom? And within the media, there is, you know, I'm sorry, it's a bit of a cliche to mention Rupert Murdoch. We've managed to get some way without mentioning Rupert, but... Okay, so Rupert and so Rupert and his son James, they have a very clear position that you, we might need the BBC, but it should be much, much smaller. Now, their story, which is repeated again and again and again, and through both in public but also through covert lobbying, is that the BBC crowds out the private sector. Now, this has been looked at time and again since the early 2000s, and no one has ever found a material crowding out effect. Now, if we take our criterion, which is the public interest, and say, well, at least in theory, how might it work that it was in the public's interest for the BBC to avoid the sorts of things that that, uh, Rupert's people do, then it would work like this, that the BBC invests less in things like Bake Off and Strictly. That increases the revenue 
of the private sector, which enables the private sector to invest more in entertainment programmes, and the net effect is an increase in the number of entertainment programmes so the public is better off. Now, the, the evidence that has been produced is miles away from that position. It's not just this is a borderline thing and, you know, two-handed economists say on the one hand this, on the other hand that. It's, it is miles away. And actually the biggest study was one that John Whittingdale himself commissioned and it came up with some numbers, but they were, they were absolutely minimal. And they were, they were sort of fairly credible numbers, but they were absolutely minimal. And the idea that therefore the public is, is, would, would be better off which is sort of tacit in the Rupert argument, it's just miles from what's been demonstrated. Well, we're not, we're not short of entertainment in general, are we? We have more entertainment uh, and more entertaining entertainment available than at any time in human history now, don't we? Yes. And the example is always given of Netflix. Do you have a Netflix account? Do yes. you regularly look at the goodies that are on display from Netflix, because it's all, Netflix is sort of the Iceland of entertainment. Everything from the freezer, long life. It, global product, instantly available. It has to have global relevance or the um, economic model breaks down. Plus a bit of highly publicized new commission product. Most of that is most of Netflix and it's fine, it's very entertaining, uh, is stuff from the freezer. But you don't get things that are live, fresh and local and which have contributed to the British broadcasting ecology very much, except for the Crown. Just to briefly go back to the koala in the room, the Murdochs, I mean, one of the things that I found hard to square in your book is you make a very persuasive argument and it's backed up by data. You say that the interventions in the entertainment world that the BBC makes, or the programmes it creates, do not crowd out or compete in a meaningful way with the commercial sector. No, they, they compete, but they don't crowd out. Right, but... That's, so crowding out refers to revenue and content investment. The, the, they are competing, and in fact, one of the ironies in this is that, you know, right-wing economists, quite rightly, um, are in favour of competition. But for some reason, competition from the BBC is, is considered unfair. Well, the reason it's considered unfair is because it's funded by a tax. But, you know, there's the issue of, is this fair? Well, is it fair that the BBC is not allowed to take advertising? Ever since it was launched, it was not allowed to take advertising because the newspapers managed to stop it. So, you know, if, quotes fairness, if you're arguing from principles, then, then you can sustain it. If you're argu arguing from reality and facts, then the argument is simply non-sustainable. Right, so you, the existence of the BBC, it may not crowd them out, but it does compete with them. It does. It raises Com their game. Absolutely. Competition is good. I mean, why is it? Is, is it just because they don't like any competition that we yes. see such a ferocious... Rupert Murdoch doesn't like taxation, he doesn't like competition, he doesn't like regulation. Okay? And that is a very simple rule of thumb. That's it. Righty. When it comes to the licence fee itself, you know, you kind of concede quite early on that a tax on white goods, i.e. television, looks a bit weird. And that extending that tax to an iPad or whatever doesn't particularly 
you know, make it any less, any more coherent. How do you think that can be resolved? Well, in process terms, the right way to resolve it is completely clear that what you need is an independent panel of people who don't have commercial vested interest in the outcome, similar to actually what the Peacock Committee, which, which looked at should the BBC carry advertising in the 1980s, and on that advertising question, uh, we think they got the answer right, and no one, no one who knows anything has ever sort of pushed back on that. But in this case, we say that the uh, licence fee is coming to the end of, of its days in a world where people are using so many different devices for consuming the service. And therefore, let's look at the options. And the criterion is the public interest, which isn't, you know, it's not a simple thing. It requires judgment, as, as did Peacock. But you then say, what are the options? And uh, advertising is one of the options. General taxation is one of the options. Subscriptions uh, is a very important option, which we think such a panel would reject once they start looking at the practicalities and uh, the impact on, on viewers and listeners. And therefore, you're left with some kind of a universal levy which isn't linked to the ownership of a TV set. Germany introduced one. Uh, Ireland is in process of introducing one. And there are various versions of that. And that's, that's the option we plump for in the end. And you have to remember that this thing about the licence fee and its current viability is an, an artificial crisis, technological determinism. You know, Netflix exists, therefore the licence fee cannot, of the kind that people have been creating against the BBC for decades. No doubt when ITV came out in 1955, they said, well, we don't need the BBC now. When HBO was emergent at the beginning of this century, said, well, they're producing really fine drama, no need for BBC now. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a completely artificial thing. There is time to do it with impartial grown-ups to the benefit of the nation. Speaking of time, why, why now with this book? You say, you know, there's this war on the BBC, it's an unprecedented crisis. You know, 2016 was charter renewal. It's not coming up for another, what, 10 or 11 years. Why, why do you feel we've reached this, this acute moment? Well, it's the, the acute moment is part of a very long-term trend. I mean, as Peter said, there have always been these attacks. The idea of writing a book along these lines, uh, I first explored in 2009, and it's been sort of bubbling away as an idea. And then when Peter and I chatted about it from some completely different context, because we were, we were people giving prizes away at the Market Research Society's annual prize-giving lunch, the awards. It turned out Peter had exactly the same view, so we started on this journey. It's taken two and a half years to write the book, and during that time, if anything, things have ramped up. <clears throat> and then after the December 2019 uh, election then they ramped up further. And I have to say that they are particularly, <laughs> the latest wave was particularly associated well with one Dominic Cummings, who your readers will be familiar with. And um, so at the time we went to press, this was before the uh, female putsch at number 10. Uh, and, you know, it takes a little bit of time for books to come out. And we shall see whether number 10 becomes less hostile to the BBC 
um, you know, with, with the new regime. But at the time we went to press, it was true. It was um, more intense than ever before. So one of the big pivots in the book, which in which Dominic Cummings doesn't feature as a villain so much as George Osborne, is this question of free TV licences for the over-75s, which has become a very big problem for the BBC's revenues and a big stick with which to beat them. Can you explain a bit about how you see that issue and where, where its origins are? Peter, do you want to talk about the origins? Well, the, 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 origin, the, the origins lie with George Osborne. The origins lie with a deal that George Osborne did in, in 2015, whose so, Peter, reality so... is very ill-documented. Uh, Peter, can we, do you want to talk about the original origins with, with Gordon? Well, absolutely. Um, the reality of this is that it is a central government welfare concession invented by Gordon Brown in 2000. Central government welfare concessions should either be, st be stopped by the government uh, with lots of advice and consultation. Or, or they should stay there. If, if we take a comparable thing, which is the winter fuel payment, which uh, to OAPs, to all OAPs, it's not at all uh, means tested, it costs two billion. Nobody asks BP and British Gas and all those people stump up for the old people. They're not about to ask them for that. This, fundamentally, um, this came out of the Conservative victory in 2015 and a series of negotiations which was preceded by six meetings with Murdoch and his people. It consisted of two Capo, OR Capo meetings between Osborne and Murdoch and four meetings with lieutenants. For the negotiations with the BBC, which were utterly disastrous, took place. They took place in secret. No consultation, no public scrutiny, no parliamentary scrutiny. And that allows the BBC's enemies in tabloid newspapers to say, completely untruthfully, the BBC is, tr is trying to take away your granny's one comfort in life at a time like this, because they want to give their executives mink-lined offices. They don't mention the fact that this is a public, central government welfare concession that's been palmed off. And how did he manage to palm it off? Because you say, I, which I hadn't known about, because I'd well, noticed We weren't in, in the room. You said Mark, Mark Thompson saw, this, saw an attempt to do this off when he yeah, was DG. Yes. So in, in, in 2010, Osborne tried it on and Thompson and um, Michael Lyons, the, the then chair, basically faced him down. Now, one of the sort of underlying things here is that in the grander scheme of things, the amount of money we're talking about is completely trivial. And that is part of the sort of thing that makes one want to weep about it, is that in 2000, when Gordon Brown produced it as the last item, a rabbit out of the hat, when he announced uh, next year's budget, then this was an attempt to sort of curry favour with, with older voters 
I mean, that's, that's what everyone sort of assumed and, and everyone interpreted it that way at a time when the old age pension wasn't going up uh, very much. And the amount of political credit which Brown got at that time was zero. You didn't get thank you, thank you, thank you, because the amount of money is so trivial. However, that type of concession, once it's there, is terribly difficult to reverse and probably politically irreversible. So in 2010, his successor, um, Osborne, tried it on. And of course, because the amount of money is pretty trivial, he backed down pretty quickly. As 2015, in 2015, he tried again, having had his six secret meetings with Rupert and Rupert's people. And this time, the, the, the then DG, Tony Hall, and, and the chair, accepted it. And was that with charter renewal as a big stick? That was the charter renewal. And in, uh, well, it's actually the, the funding deal isn't absolutely linked to charter renewal, but it's sort of at the same time. It should be linked, but it wasn't. So this, is, this was just um, real politique rather than sort of rational uh, decision making. And the BBC shouldn't have accepted it. Okay, in my view, I'm, you know, I, the DG and the chair were wrong to accept it. And the DG even then said, uh, you know, this was a fair deal and a good deal. The Sun newspaper uh, said it was too generous. It was an absolute disaster and it's very hard to reverse. He didn't actually force the BBC to pay for free licences for, ev- for all households with over 75s, regardless of household size or income. He forced them to take responsibility. When the board subsequently said, we are going to limit it, to households with someone aged over 75 and on pension credit, and, and in other words, it's means-tested by the government, uh, then that's when the tabloids uh, absolutely went to town saying, saying you know, the grannies, the grannies are going to be sort of bashed by the BBC. Uh, so the BBC should, in my view, in Peter's view, should in 2015 have just said, no, if you're hard enough, go ahead, but we'll all resign and the amount of money we're talking about is, is, is trivial. They didn't do that. We're now living with the consequences. The answer is a very straightforward thing, which is it should again be, because it's politically irreversible, it should again be paid for out of general taxation, like the much more expensive winter fuel allowance. And remember, in terms of the central government budget and the enormous national spiralling national debt, 750 million is chicken feed. But in terms of the BBC's budget, its real disposable income, its budget to spend on programmes and transmissions and wages and all those things, it's a massive amount. And if it had to take the full responsibility for it, people would lose programs they really valued. OAPs would lose programs they really valued. So there are two ways of paying for this thing. One of them is to say the whole public gets less good TV and radio. The other is to say it's paid for out of general taxation. And um, to me, you know, if you look at it rationally, uh, that's essentially a no-brainer. Now, talking about the BBC's budget, there is a pretty wide spread perception and I know at least anecdotally from because you know I'm one of those North London liberal wetties and I'm surrounded by you know telly people 
there is a perception, even among those who work there, that the BBC is very top-heavy, is very bureaucratic, that there are too many chiefs and not enough Indians, and that an awful lot of money goes on overheads rather than on the making of actual programmes. Now, you say very aggressively in this book that that's just nonsense. That entire perception is wrong. It's not entirely wrong, but it's almost entirely wrong. So two things on the money. The first thing is very few people realise that even by last year, because of the 2010 and 2015 uh, funding deals, the BBC's net public funding was 30% lower than in 2010. And I mean, one of the, the Beeb is very hard to help. If any other public service had had its real public funding cut by 30%, the BBC would be talking about it. But because it's the BBC itself, it doesn't. The depth of the cuts is far more than most people have realized. And there's even among the BBC's enemies, a narrative which says the BBC must stop expanding, you know, and, and it's imperialism. And there's part of this crowding out and distinctiveness nonsense. So that is, is just factually completely wrong. The issue of overheads, well, of course, in creative industries, efficiency is a slightly tricky thing to measure. Um, you know, otherwise you end up saying Haydn was better than Mozart. I mean, you know, this is, this is, this is not a, a sort of straightforward thing as if you're talking about sort of baked beans or something. When you look at the numbers, and we were provoked by a 2015 Daily Mail um, article, which made a very specific claim, which was less than half of the BBC's money goes into programmes. And that is demonstrably false. Depending on what you think is an appropriate thing to classify as a directly essential overhead, and you know, whether you include things like distribution, you know, the correct proportion is sort of between about 75% and about 93%. But the BBC's overheads as a percentage of its revenue are low and have been shown by independent consultants to be better than average for the industry. Programme makers will always resent bean counters and managers. They hated John, many of them hated John Burt um, and, and said, you know, they wouldn't be able to make proper programmes and so on and so on. The net effect, there were some political effects, but also the net effect in terms of efficiency was quite large efficiency gains. So I think it's inherent in the beast that you have that. Now, having said that, W1A, in which the BBC spoofs itself, is clearly based on reality. It's not a pure fantasy. It is exaggerating a reality. And because the BBC is always under um, attack, and no question, it tends towards political correctness and worrying about how will this be interpreted and so on and so on, it is rather cautious. And uh, we think it's too, too cautious. There are worse things in the world, as you pointed out recently, Sam, than political correctness or wokeness, which is an obvious American talking point. Um, the truth about the BBC, which might not even be perceived by North London liberals around you, because they've read all those accounts, they've heard that there's enormous extravagance, and they're not, they're not cost accountants. The story of the BBC's extravagance has been sold and sold remorselessly day after day. People exist 
whose sole paid job is to say bad things about the BBC. That's an astonishing thing we found. Who are these people? These people exist on a variety of levels. They exist within certain kinds of newspapers and they exist online and they exist in very curious organizations like News Watch or Biased BBC or that extraordinary range of very raucous YouTube thing whose actual funding or even sourcing you can't really um, determine. But if you go to YouTube and, and put in a search term, which is some sort of disobliging thing about the BBC, it tumbles out. There are people saying these things. I used to work in the BBC and I saw it all. Are these people all shills of Murdoch? Where, where, where's the motivation and the money for this coming? We don't know. We don't know. They're, they're, not, all, they're not all Murdoch employees, no. It's, it's a very diverse thing. We, it's interesting because you have to make a distinction between the general population, um, in which the old cliché that people on the right um, and who are older tend to think the BBC is left-wing, people on the left and who are younger tend to think the BBC is establishment and, and, and right-wing. And it's, it's almost symmetric. It's not quite symmetric, but it's almost symmetric. And that, if you like, shows that this sort of extraordinary, relentless attempt to persuade the wider population not to trust the BBC simply hasn't worked. The BBC is by far the most trusted news source um, in the UK by the general population. So you've got that situation with the wider population. You then have something else, which is organised attacks on the BBC, as people doing it for their day job. And we thought these would be more on the right when we started the research for this book. We were astonished at the extent to which it's more on the right. So the, the far left definitely think the BBC was unfair on Jeremy Corbyn. But if you look at the sort of systematic, endless, organised attacks on the BBC, they are even more from the right than we had expected when we started. And, of course, we talk about 55 Tufton Street and, and the uh, general um, opaquely funded uh, right-wing think tanks who hate being called right-wing think tanks. Yes, and you describe, you describe the spectator as being the increasingly conservative spectator. Um, yes. I wasn't aware we were increasingly conservative. I thought, being conservatives, we tried to stay as conservative as we'd always been. Well, it depends what you mean by conservative, of course. That the, the, you know, I mean, Dominic Cummings is not a conservative. So um, I think you, you, you potentially get into sort of that. So the, I think that, that statement uh, was a statement of opinion on our behalf. And I hope throughout the book it's very clear where what we're saying is based on, on evidence and what we're saying is an opinion. Peter, do you want to amplify that? It is very fascinating where the spectator thinks it belongs in life and where it does now and the sorts of people it recruits as writers. I would say that um, latterly it has recruited more raucous, not conservative, conservative, if you see what I mean. Because conservative means, for instance, in America, whose influence I think is more visible now. Um, conservative means kind of quite different in America. Certainly. Conservative I'm not talking, I'm not talking yeah. at this point about tacky and golden dawn. Mm. Do you know, that exists in another world entirely. 
I wonder what you both think about the perception that the BBC does have a sort of, among most of the people who work for it, a kind of homogeneity of homogeneousness. Homogeneity. I'm not sure what the word is. Homogeneity. Homogeneity. Thank you. Of culture. Yeah. The, that uh, is being said, even as we speak, by young Robin Aitken in your pages, mm. in your current pages. Do you think it's true? Well, it's accusing them of thought crime, isn't it? I mean, it's absolutely good. Look, how can we prove that one? We can't say. It's like, you know, that fashionable phrase, cultural Marxism. If we can't pin Marxism, I've been very popular in America. If we can't pin actual Marxism on a group of people, indeed, if we don't actually know what Marxism is, we can't define it, we can say that they have certain liberal sympathies and therefore they must be cultural Marxist. Of course, there's no such thing. And the idea from Robert a Robin Aitken that there's a sort of absolute culture throughout the BBC of one kind. Remember, the BBC is many cultures with many sub-disciplines. Do you imagine that people are cultural Marxism when they're producing shiny floor entertainment programs or sports programs? Do we think that Gary Lineker is a Marxist? You know, come on. Well, I think you're, you're straw-manning the position a bit. Now, there is a much more homogeneous culture or a homogeneous range of cultures within the spectator. Just think of, I'd hate to quote Owen Jones, but Owen Jones pointed out the real culture and sympathies of a lot of important political gatekeepers within the BBC. And Allegra Stratton has sort of dramatized this because she was political editor of Newsnight, important in its world. There is an ideal to no man in my admiration for Andrew Neil. I think he's utterly marvelous. However, he could not be described as any kind of Marxist, or even a lefty liberal of the softest kind. He was the most, until he left, he was the most important person in BBC politics. And then there is Robbie Gibb, now Sir Robbie Gibb. You know, it's simply, it's accusations of thought crime, because you can't think of another real crime to pin on those people. Yes, no, I do, I, I'm not... I think you're slightly straw-manning the position. I don't think even its most devoted detractors would say that the BBC was institutionally, culturally Marxist. Yes, they would. Oh, yes, they would. Look at the comment sections on those YouTube things. Oh, yes, they do on a constant basis. So, sorry, there, there will be loons who say that the BBC is culturally Marxist, but I think most of the positions would, be, would say that they represent as a liberal metropolitan establishment worldview to which the likes of Robbie Gibb and Andrew Neil are noticeably select exceptions, and that the you know the, the sort of on the candles on the cake, um, you know you'll have a few true blue candles, but the cake itself is pink underneath. Mm. I, I think that's much exaggerated. It's clearly there's a grain of truth in it, but I don't think it's unique to the BBC, and so this is another of those examples in which the people making that statement don't make comparisons with other London-based media organisations. And so clearly there's a grain of truth in it um, that the people who are 
uh, running the BBC, the people who are creating the programmes, are not representative of the full UK population, and how could they be? Now, on the agenda for the new Director-General is to say there are some aspects of this which we can tackle, um, and he's talking about an organisation uh, which moves towards being 50% uh, female, uh, 20% uh, minority ethnic, 12% disabled. And so there are those sort of relatively tangible aspects of it. The internal culture, you know, if there's this commitment to impartiality. And again, the, 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 the real criterion is not so much what do we, I have to say, largely speculate about the views of the people working inside, particularly news and current affairs, the BBC, which I'm sure do, although we don't, we don't have sort of proper evidence of this, I'm sure do uh, tend towards liberalism, centrism, and voting remain in, in, in the Brexit referendum. But then there's the second question is, how is that manifested in terms of the actual programmes? And I think that's, if you like, the biggest weakness of Robin Aitken. In fact, we got um, Tom Mills, who's, who's a left-wing uh, academic, and Robin Aitken to review each other's books in order to expose the difference between Robin Aitken, who regarded herself evident from his own perceived lived experience within BBC News over an extended period and the much more sort of analytical and, and data-based approach of someone like a left-wing academic. And, um, you know, look at the two viewpoints and there's a grain of truth in both of them, would be my view. Our book is primarily about the war against the BBC in the UK, but outside the organisation. So we've not done ethnographic work inside the BBC. Do you think that this idea, that this impartiality thing is more of a... I'm trying try to express this properly. It's, it's a sort of albatross in that it... Because it's harder and harder to come up with a satisfactory definition of impartiality, and we have these arguments about false balance, you know, is it... You know, particularly in the age of fake news. False balance is not the answer. Exactly. Um, it becomes, you know, almost the biggest stick with which to beat the BBC. As you say, you know, a lot of people on the left believe the BBC is an organ of the, you know, neoliberal establishment. A lot of people on the right believe the BBC is, you know, crawling with lefties. And because there isn't a satisfactory definition, you know, is it something that could or should just be abandoned because it becomes... You know, impossible to argue. It absolutely shouldn't be abandoned, and crucially, the public agrees with that. So, uh, the fact that in the UK we have impartiality rules, they're not just for the BBC, they're for all broadcast news and, uh, you know, public sector and private sector. And although the public doesn't know the, the small print about that, they do understand that with newspapers, newspapers are opinionated. They try to be accurate, but they don't try to be impartial. The BBC and other broadcasters try to be both accurate and impartial. And that's tricky, but, you know, it, is, it, it becomes tougher the more society becomes more polarised. We have just seen an election, presidential election in the US about just how destructive it is uh, if, if you have really polarised, particularly broadcast news. And interestingly, 
when Dominic Cummings in 2004 posted on his blog for his, for his little um, think tank about what it was, the kind of media ecology he wanted to move the UK to, it was essentially the US media ecology. And similarly, if you look at what James Murdoch and what Rupert Murdoch have said, it's essentially the US. And so it's this rather attractive idea of, of the, the market for ideas and the best ideas will win. Well, that <laughs> unfortunately, it's quite a lot more complicated than that. And we've just seen in the US what the results can be. So if we look at what did Don Cummings actually sort of proposed in 2004. Number one was that we have to weaken and undermine the BBC using every means at our disposal. Number two is we want right-wing shock jock phone-in radio stations of the kind that have been inflaming the um, right-wing, including you know white supremacists uh, in the US. And number three is uh, we want the equivalent of Fox News over here. We want right-wing new services, which there's now two attempts to launch, subject to Ofcom being able to police it, because Ofcom's duty is to ensure that that uh, broadcast news is impartial. And number four, which I think has been hugely destructive in the US, is to say there should be no limit on political advertising. And what we've seen in the US uh, is, is research which shows that if you want to know future policy changes... The best predictor is opinion changes among the top 10%. There isn't data on the top 1%, but you know, a reasonable conjecture is it's e an even stronger predictor is what suits the top 1%. And these are the people who have been funding the think tanks, including the, the opaquely funded th think tanks we now have in London, following the US model. I don't think that's what we want, but crucially, the public agrees with what Peter and I are saying, which is this impartiality rule. It, it's very difficult in all sorts of ways. It's increasingly difficult in a polarised society, but the public values it. Well, we should see. And perhaps if we're really lucky, Dom Cummings will drop into the comments section of this podcast to let us know. Delighted to have a debate with him. Or if he's persuaded. Well, we have to hope. We dream, anyway. Patrick Barwise, Peter York, thank you very much indeed for your time. The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivalled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.